From Greenville, South Carolina, we present... Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church of North America, preaching Christ in all His fullness. broadcast of Let the Bible Speak, featuring messages preached by Dr. Alan Cairns, founder of Let the Bible Speak Radio Ministries. As we begin this new year, we invite you to hear Dr. Cairns as he continues a series of studies in the earthly life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, messages that focus on the Savior Himself, as revealed in His teaching and miracles, His atoning death on the cross, and His glorious resurrection. We'll hear from Dr. Cairns in just a few minutes. First of all, we invite you to enjoy this devotional thought from the pen of C.H. Spurgeon, as found in his collection called Morning and Evening. This morning's text is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 5. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. Here is a blessed proportion. The ruler of providence bears a pair of scales, in this side he puts his people's trials, and in that he puts their consolations. When the scale of trial is nearly empty, you will always find the scale of consolation in nearly the same condition. And when the scale of trials is full, you will find the scale of consolation just as heavy. When the black clouds gather most, the light is the more brightly revealed to us. When the night lowers and the tempest is coming on, the heavenly captain is always closest to his crew. It is a blessed thing that when we are most cast down, then it is that we are most lifted up by the consolations of the Spirit. One reason is because trials make more room for consolation. Great hearts can only be made by great troubles. The spade of trouble digs the reservoir of comfort deeper and makes more room for consolation. God comes into our heart. He finds it full. He begins to break our comforts and to make it empty. Then there is more room for grace. The humbler a man lies, the more comfort he will always have, because he will be more fitted to receive it. Another reason why we are often most happy in our troubles is this. Then we have the closest dealings with God. When the barn is full, man can live without God. When the purse is bursting with gold, we try to do without so much prayer. But once take our gourds away, and we want our God. Once cleanse the idols out of the house, then we are compelled to honor Jehovah. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. There is no cry so good as that which comes from the bottom of the mountains, no prayer half so hearty as that which comes up from the depths of the soul through deep trials and afflictions. Hence they bring us to God, and we are happy. For nearness to God is happiness." Come, troubled believer, 
Fret not over your heavy troubles, for they are the heralds of weighty mercies. If your Bible reading is usually in the authorized or King James Version, you have probably encountered words that are quite unfamiliar. Because the authorized version was translated in the 17th century, some of its words are no longer in use or perhaps have a different meaning now. Let the Bible Speak is pleased to offer a booklet containing many of those archaic terms and their meaning in modern-day speech. In addition, the booklet contains a Bible reading plan that will help you to read the whole Bible through in two years, as well as the Psalms and the New Testament twice. To obtain your copy of A Bible Word List free of charge, simply email info at faithfpc.org. That's info at faithfpc.org. If you wish, you may call us at 864-244-2408. That's 864-244-2408. If you prefer regular mail, simply write, Let the Bible Speak, 1207 Haywood Road, Greenville, South Carolina, 29615. That's Let the Bible Speak, 1207 Haywood Road, Greenville, South Carolina, 29615. Just ask for your copy of A Bible Word List, and we'll be happy to provide it.
On today's broadcast of Let the Bible Speak, Dr. Cairns continues to present seven essential views of Christ. As Jesus gathered his disciples around him in Caesarea Philippi, he asked them who the people thought he was. The answers included many superstitious and fanciful ideas about Christ. Peter's confession, Thou art the Christ, the Son of God, is the only correct response. The first view of Christ is that he is the Christ. He is not one of many, for Jesus is the only Savior of sinners. The second view is that he is the Son of God. This refers to his eternal deity. He is the second person of the Trinity, equal in power and majesty to God the Father and to the Holy Spirit. Christ's response to Peter's confession included the words, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Through the centuries there has been much disagreement as to the interpretation of that statement. Dr. Cairns will seek to shed light on the issue as he presents the third view, Christ as the foundation and builder of his church. Now here is Dr. Cairns with the next portion of Seven Essential Views of Christ. Turning this morning to Matthew chapter 16, we didn't get quite finished last week. In fact, we didn't get anywhere nearly near the finish. So we are returning to Matthew chapter 16. We commence reading again at verse 13. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, 
and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Finishing our reading at verse 27, the Lord will add his own blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. At Caesarea Philippi, which last Lord's Day I took time to point out, was a center of pagan worship. To this day, the remnants of that pagan worship are obvious to every traveler. And Caesarea Philippi, or Banyus as it is now known, is just about always on the schedule for any visitor to the Holy Land. To this day, then, the remnants of its pagan worship origin are clear to be seen. And in that place of pagan worship, surrounded by Gentiles, Christ drew his disciples to him and asked them, Whom do men say that I am? They gave the answers that were then floating around jury, and every one of them a wrong answer. Then the Lord Jesus asked, But whom say ye that I am? Doing as he always does, bringing the general down to the particular bringing us from the opinions of the crowd to the faith of the individual. For really it matters not what the world says about Christ as far as you are concerned when you stand before God. It will be no defense for a Christ rejecter when he stands before God to say, I lived in an age when people mocked the Savior, or I lived in a society that downplayed his word, or among people who easily dismissed his claims, each man, each woman will stand before God, and every single one of us will give account of himself. And even as we've been reading toward the end of this Bible reading, the Lord Jesus will judge every one of us individually and according to our own works, particularly in response to him. Whom say ye that I am? It's a very much a parallel question with one that arises later in Matthew's Gospel when Jesus asked, What think ye of Christ? 
What do you think of Christ? I suppose you could well ask the question, do you ever think of Christ? Do you really give much time to thinking of Christ? Or are you like those lemming-like people, so enraptured with the things of this world, so blinded by the trivialities of time that you are hurtling toward the precipice of eternity, one after another, going out to death eternal with hardly a thought in your mind of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Do you ever think of Christ? Do you ever think seriously of who he is? What it means that he came into the world and lived and died and alone among men could say, I have power to lay down my life. I have power to take it up again. And did so. Do you ever give much thought to his command, repent and believe the gospel? Do you ever give much thought to his command to take up the cross and follow him? What think you of Christ? When you think of him, make sure your thoughts are guided not by the philosophies of men, the changeable moods of men, or the in-thing, in-current theology, but by the infallible and immutable Word of God. Whom do men say that I am? They get it wrong all the time. All the time. But whom say ye that I am? Peter answered that question. I think he was expressing the faith of all the apostles at that time, though, as usual, he was the first to speak. We find that again later in the chapter. Sometimes he spoke well, sometimes he spoke ill. Sometimes his impetuosity was a mark of faith. Other times it was just a mark of stupidity. In this case, he spoke with faith. And they said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Lord Jesus took that statement, and he used it as the basis of an extended revelation of himself, the most extensive verbal revelation that he had yet given to his disciples and through them to the world. And in this self-revelation, he gives us seven essential views of his person and of his work and offices. Now, last week we got to look at the first two of them. He is the Christ. Verse 16, he is the Son of the living God. And we took time to try to understand what those things indicate. Now we come to the words of verse 18, and we notice that he is the foundation and the builder of his church. He said uh, unto Peter, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
This is a wonderful text. It's a text that has caused centuries of controversy, long predating the Protestant Reformation. There's been controversy on the interpretation of this text right back to the earliest records of the early church fathers. For many centuries, the Church of Rome has said uh, Peter is the rock upon which Christ intended to build his church. And, of course, Peter was the first bishop of Rome. Uh, so, being the first pope, what Christ really meant was that he would build his church upon the papal Peter, and that ever after that, through the centuries of time, Peter, as the Pope still calls himself, whatever his other name may be, John, Paul, or Pius, or Clement, or whatever, he is always Peter, the rock, upon which the church is still built, and upon which it still founds its unity, and apart from which there is no union with Christ, or no salvation for the soul. That's the Roman interpretation of thou art Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. It may come as a surprise when I tell you that most Protestant commentators agree that Christ, when he said upon this rock I will build my church, meant to say that Peter was the rock. Most Protestant commentators take that view. However, they point out that it was not because of his own rock-like firmness. You've only got to read a few verses further to find that he was more like a, a straw blown about in the wind rather than being rock-like and firm when he became the mouthpiece of Satan. Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. So it was not because of his rock-like firmness uh, that uh, he was made the rock. They point out that Peter is the rock only in the sense that uh, he had the privilege of being the one who first brought the gospel to the Jews on the day of Pentecost and then into Samaria and then to the Gentiles. He, as we'll see later, opened the door in all these places. And along with the other apostles, according to Ephesians chapter 2, was the foundation. In other words, the first generation of believers who gave the gospel to the rest, through whose efforts and ministry and doctrine the rest were brought into Christ. These interpreters point out that Jesus says, I am the builder, I will build my church. And most especially they point out that, of course, even if Jesus meant Peter was the rock, that doesn't say a word about John Paul II. Uh, Peter was not in Rome at this time. In fact, there is very grave doubt as to whether Peter was ever in Rome at any time. He certainly was never bishop of Rome. He was essentially the uh, apostle to the Jews, not to the Gentiles. When Paul went to Rome, Peter was not there. When Paul wrote to Rome sometime, some years before he went there, Peter was not there. 
In fact, the church had not been established by any of the apostles, but rather by a group of Christians who had come together from many places and had arrived in the imperial capital. So even if Christ did say to Peter, you're the rock, I'm going to build the church, he certainly did not intend anything to be carried over to the Roman pontiffs. There is no such thing in Scripture as what is called apostolic succession. I don't want to get off on a tangent here, but this uh, not only impinges on the doctrine of the Church of Rome, but on uh, much of the charismatic mania that is going around today. You will find that the apostles had a power that lived and died with them. They had the gift of the Holy Spirit, and on whomsoever they laid their hands, the gift of the Spirit was transmitted. They received the gift of the Spirit. No one else ever since has had that unique power and gift of God. It does not exist. And anyone who comes along with some notion of you were listening to Let the Bible Speak, the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian the Church lie. of North America. So we hope you've enjoyed Protestant and benefited from today's interpretation program. We're here as your passage. servants for Christ's sake. If we can be of any further help to you in the things of the Lord, we invite you to contact us. If you would like to receive our booklet, Separated Unto the Gospel, a booklet that sets forth the beliefs and standards of the Free Presbyterian Church, you may have a copy free of charge, simply for the asking. Our mailing address is Let the Bible Speak, 1207 Haywood Road, Greenville, South Carolina, 29615. That's Let the Bible Speak, 1207 Haywood Road, Greenville, South Carolina, 29615. Our email address is info at faithfpc.org. That's info at faithfpc.org. If you would like to learn more about the Free Presbyterian Church of North America, we invite you to visit our website, www.fpcna.org. That's www.fpcna.org. This is Charles Kelsch saying thank you for listening and inviting you to join us again as we Let the Bible Speak.